Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined as always by Chris Bougay. Hey, Chris. How's it going, Rachel? Good. Okay, last episode, I talked all about what I did over the summer break, which was not take a break at all. <laughs> what did you do this summer? I also took very little time off over the summer, spent a lot of time going different places and doing different things. Too much probably to fit all into one banter. Um, We have our notes to the side here of what we'll talk about. So I'm going to pick one thing to start with and and we'll go from there. Okay. One of the first things I got to do this summer, which was a really exciting opportunity was um, in my local school district. um, I got to do a training for bus drivers on AAC, which is not a population of people we get to work with all that often. I think it happens at individual schools sometimes about teaching them about visual supports. We've certainly done that over the years in our neck of the woods. And I bet other people have had experiences like that in their own neck of the woods where we've got this one kid. So we do this one training with this one bus driver. That's certainly how it happened in my area is that uh, there was this one kid that um, that there were, had, had uh, very unique needs and they wanted me to uh, teach the bus driver and the bus attendant about how to use AAC. And I was like, well, what I'm going to show is actually kind of universal. So you got other people that might want to participate? And they're like, yeah, actually, this is kind of a need that we have universally. We've, we have more AAC users than we've ever had before. And many of them take the bus. So let's see how many people we can get together. And so that we, we cobbled together all these different bus drivers. And I got to come and spend, I don't know, maybe 90 minutes giving them a big overview. And one big, huge takeaway, an aha moment that uh, they had was around the word salad. <laughs> Okay, so how how do we make this connection? Well, there's a particular kid that one of his favorite things to say, and one of the things he uses, uh, the word the word he uses on his AAC device all the time is salad. So you could imagine how if you're on a bus and this kid brings out his AAC device and he says salad, 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 what do you think the bus driver uh, or the bus attendant might think the kid is trying to say? That he wants a salad. That he wants a salad, right? Um, and that is certainly an intuitive answer. And that's what most people will probably think. And they would say to him, "We don't have a salad. We're on a bus. You know, I don't have a salad for you. Do you have something in your in your lunch bag?" And they'll they'll try and interpret the word salad as um, as a request for eating a salad. But then the aha moment they had while we were discussing it, it was I was I was like. How much, how many opportunities has this kid had to, had to learn the word green? Or what if this kid receptively knows the word crunchy and wants something crunchy, but there's no, he's never been taught that on his communication device? Or what if salads are usually cold, right? It's salad, you, know, you, t- you taste it or you feel it's usually served cold, right? Um, And so what if he just wants the sensation of something cold and that's not been a word that he really has had the opportunity to learn yet expressively on his device? What if you were that kid and the only word you really knew successfully was salad, but salad really meant crunchy, it meant cold, it meant 
something green. It meant something that I put in my mouth. What if you were just sort of globalizing the word salad to have all these sorts of meanings because we didn't have, he hasn't yet had the opportunity to learn the word crunchy or cold or whatever, um, whatever is resonating with him and whatever sensory need he's having, whatever thought he's is going through his mind. This was a huge aha moment. Like I, I saw the people's eyes light up around the room. This uh, people leaning back in their chairs with surprise, like, yeah, of course, right? Like, of course I, I, we're interpreting this word salad as a request and he might be trying to request something, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he's requesting a salad. He might be requesting something that is adjacent to a salad, that has a similar meaning to a salad, but he doesn't know those words. And um, that kicked off an entire conversation with them about, well, okay, what would we do? And it's like, well, you maybe wouldn't just end with salad, but you could be asking some other questions. I don't have a salad, but do you want something cold? Uh, cold, and then of course we talked about modeling on the device. Um, do you want something crunchy? Like, and it makes this sound, you know, like make and, and, and have a fun experience around it. And so again, really big uh, moments with bus drivers about how to really uh, respect uh, the the communication partner, really understand that it's probably not just w the word doesn't equal one thing, but it might equal many things. Um, and so it was really just a great experience. I love this story, Chris, for so many reasons. One, it's just like the idea of training bus drivers like really just makes me smile. Like, yes, like all, you know, people need to understand AAC and how to support complex communicators. Um, and I, I love that you did this training. I also think that the, this is so common, right? Our students have such limited language. And then when they do use that language, maybe over and over again, we just assume that they're, you know, oh, they're just perseverating or they're just stimming or they're just whatever, fill in the blank, right? Of some type of limiting belief about the fact that, you know, they're not, they couldn't possibly be using that language for, for other purposes. And it's just like so important of a reminder that we need to really follow a student's lead. And so I, I, I give the example because one of my students was saying George Washington, or no, sorry, it was Abraham Lincoln. He, so every he's, he keeps talking about Abraham Lincoln and everyone's like, what? Like, we don't get it. Like, he just keeps saying Abraham Lincoln. I'm like, so like my therapist is like, what do I do? I'm like, teach the kid about Abraham Lincoln, like pull up Abraham Lincoln on like, you know, Google and like, and then everything adjacent to Abraham Lincoln. And he loved it. And so I think it's just an important reminder that follow, like that was a thread that we started pulling at and we realized a huge learning opportunity there. And so salad is a thread that we could just pull at. And there's a huge learning opportunity there, right? Like we just build off of where a child takes us with their, you know, spontaneous communication and keep building language around that. Um, and so I just think that that, unfortunately, is not done all the time. It's just kind of like, oh, like we don't have salad right now. Next, right? Instead of building off of that and, you know, attributing meaning and then using that as a learning opportunity to teach other language. 
Right. We could be writing stories about salad and talking about all the words that are adjacent to salad. And then we can be reading stories about salads. And, and yes, just following the student's lead, using that as an opportunity to teach them concepts. Uh, it just makes a lot of sense. And these bus drivers got it. <laughs> you know, that was the big, uh, you know, they were totally invested in learning how to do this um, and learning how to use communication devices. I had uh, I had the opportunity to bring iPads and pass them out and let them push the buttons and try some things and again this is the first time some of them had seen them but no one had really spent or if they had they were in very limited capacity uh teaching them anything about aac so they were very appreciative and that's been my experience with anyone learning about aac is that you know it's uh um People are hungry for the information. They want to learn the information. They want they they feel like something is missing about their own practices, and that when you fill in these gaps for them, they just get super excited. You know, so um, that was uh, a fun experience over the summer. One I was really excited to do. One that um, I left feeling really good about. You know, like all right, I feel like you know did some good work over the summer. You know, and then the other thing that happened over the summer was. Um, the team that I work with and myself provide extended school year services, uh, you know, really support services to the people that are providing extended school year services. And think something that's happening, I think, all over the country uh, and maybe in other parts is that there's a teacher shortages, right? And over the summer, it's even worse, right? So there's a lot of people that they do hire that maybe have not had any sort of experience with AAC. So there was a lot of come in, do a lot of introductory teaching. Um, and then the other flip side of that is because AAC has been around for a while now, like robust AAC, but we, there's more people than ever that have experiences with um, kids who use iPads or high-tech AAC. And so the flip side of this introductory training is coming to meet people who have been like, oh yeah, I've had this in my class for like seven years now. I know what I'm doing. And then I start probing. Well, okay, let's, has anyone actually done some sort of something specific with you or taught you anything? And they're like, no, have anyone showed you how this app is designed, for instance? No, and suddenly it's like, Okay, just because you've had it in your room doesn't mean you actually know. And lots of times the people that are meant to teach you have done some introductory training, but there's been staff turnover. Again, that's a bit that's an issue in, in every school district is turnover. Um, so there was an opportunity to teach people who are new and then really, really teach people who have had it for a while, had exposure to it, but hadn't had anything sort of structured or formalized. So uh, there was, again, a lot of opportunities for a lot of good learning over the summer, and I was I was there for it. And so were the, my teammates that I get to work with. I love it. I love it. It's so great. And um, yeah, I totally can resonate. I just did a training last week with a preschool classroom. Teachers have never, ever seen AAC. And my client is now in their preschool class. And so they were open to a training and um, learning about it. And there was definitely some like aha moments and light bulb moments. And and so it is really exciting uh, when we get a chance to introduce AAC for the first time to a group um, and kind of share a different, a different way that individuals can communicate. 
Now, I've had some other experiences over the summer that I think are going to have to wait until the next banter or some future banter. For instance, I'll foreshadow them here now to, to, to keep people on uh, bated breath. But um, I had an opportunity to go to Alabama and participate in an experience there that I'll talk all about by uh, uh, a group called United Ability um, and uh, got to... Uh, do some really interesting and different stuff at that conference, so at that experience. So I'll tell you all about that in the future. And then uh, a year ago, me and the Inclusive Learning 365 team did this whole uh, road trip down to ISTE, well, which was in New Orleans last year. There was all sorts of stuff in our Patreon about it, and we've talked about it on the podcast. Uh, but this year, it was up in this little burg. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's um, Philadelphia. It's on the. It's a city on the eastern side of Pennsylvania. You know, we probably don't know it, but oh, Philly! <laughs> Interesting. Never heard of it. <laughs> um, but that's where the ISTE conference was this year, and we got to go. And there were certain. Uh, I made a whole top five list of things that I learned at ISTE that I can't wait to share with you on the podcast. So we'll come back and do that at a future time. Because now is the time to listen to part two of my interview with my longtime friend and colleague, Judy Schoonover. If you enjoy talking with tech, we could use your help in spreading the word about the podcast. Please take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. The more positive reviews the podcast gets, the easier it becomes for others to find it. The more people who find the podcast, the more the word spreads about how to effectively consider and implement AAC. And who doesn't want that? If that sounds good to you, please take a moment and give the podcast a quick review. We'd so very much appreciate it. Now, let's get back into the episode. Okay, so what's next, Chris? What do we what do you want to know? Okay, well I'm just the Oracle today, right? <laughs> okay, so on this podcast, we've been doing it for over five years now. I guess I, I keep saying that. I guess we might even be closing in on six years at this point. Um, and something this podcast is all about is AAC, right? And so let's talk about the occupational therapy role when it comes to AT in general, but then more specifically, AAC. How do you see those things sort of working with occupational therapy? Oh, it's it's imperative. I don't see how one discipline could do it on their own. Um, I believe strongly in interdisciplinary um, practice, and uh, you're missing something if you don't have all the players at the table. Uh, with with uh, AAC and OT, it's a natural fit because, and I know a lot of SLPs are wonderful at doing this, but if they're not, if they need a little bit more help, it's that problem solving, number one, with the position of the, of the device and the access point of doing the task analysis. How does this child move? How, what's their energy level? What's their comfort level? Um, are they overstimulated? Are they understimulated? Um, all those kinds of things can help make a good um, a, a good talking point with part of the decision making by by considering all those different standpoints. Um, I, I could never ever ever tell you how a child would or what the best approach to start with communication would be, other than the fact that they need to be able to to contact whatever is selected, um, and that's something that I think OTs have a very strong 
uh, role in. They also have a strong role in, in, again, the task analysis. I remember going into a classroom and watching this child. They were saying, you know, this child doesn't doesn't uh, use but but one row, and they seem to say the same thing over and over again. And I looked at at the child, and I looked at where they were sitting, and I looked at the device, and I realized that the glare from the overhead lightings kind of obliterated obliterated most of the, the viewing on the screen, but they were so used to putting the device in a certain location and the kids sat in a certain location that this was overlooked. And just by angling that device, all of a sudden, number one, the, the child could reach the far end of the device. Um, they'd had it pushed back from the edge of the table so it wouldn't fall and break and all that kind of stuff. But the child couldn't reach comfortably and they couldn't see well. And those were just two simple things that could be fixed. Also considering the, the fatigability and whether the child needs to be positioned differently if, if they're going to be using the voice output device and, and um, whether, uh, whether the, the force required for them to activate it is more than they can handle or when they're not handling it or not communicating, is it because they don't want to or they're shot for the day? And so those are things that, not that the OT can fix it by themselves, but it's part of that problem solving that everybody can contribute to. When when Joy Zabala talks about the uh, the set framework and we, we talk about the student and the environments and the tasks that they need to do, we need input from everybody. Um, and so if, if, the, uh, if the student needs to communicate, we need um, input from everybody about how they look, what their strengths and their, their challenges are, um, what they're required to do, and what it looks like in those different environments. And then um, we can, we can, um, we can do a better job of, of coming to some conclusions on what is needed, when it's needed, um, and, and who is the best person to, to maybe lead the charge. Uh, my advice to OTs, especially the ones that are new, because we're still not doing interprofessional collaboration at the pre-service level as much as we could be doing. I, I would strongly recommend if I were in charge of all the universities that these classes be done as, as classes um, together with special educators, um, uh, SLPs, OTs, um, uh, physical therapists, and engineers because we need to communicate what's needed to engineers and engineers know, need to know what kinds of questions to ask so that, that when products are being developed, we know what to do. Um, everybody knows what to do. I think OTs need to learn what as much as they can about AAC if they haven't learned it all to, uh, before. I think the best way of doing that is to partner. And that was one of the things that I enjoyed doing so much. I always um, collaborated as an OT. I collaborated with the teacher, the speech pathologist, and the guidance counselor. They were my favorites, and but also the PTs. Um, and um, also, never leave home without it. It's, it's that slogan. I can't even remember what, what uh, product that rec represents. But too many times I've seen someone who is more focused on what they need to accomplish during that time that they have with the child that maybe the AAC device gets left behind because they're going to be working on A, B, or C. And I'm not going to name a discipline because I think it happens across the board. Um, but uh, AAC is part of uh, a child's life. It's part of their personhood. And so they need to have it at all times and it needs to be there. But 
there we have maybe someone who's less familiar with the device. So it behooves anybody, whether it's the teacher, whether it's the related service provider, to become more familiar with the device that the child or the, the, um, the methodology um, that the child is using to communicate um, and be familiar with how they access it um, and to understand um, a little bit more about um, uh, how the device itself works, not, not where it's positioned, for example, or whether it's tilted, but exactly what is expected um, of the device. It's not just something where they touch something and they talk. It's, it's way more than that. Um, and understanding uh, the, the, um, the continuum of what's available can help people make better decisions regardless of what discipline. I know that sometimes the, the quick decision when a child can't necessarily um, press um, the, the surface of a voice output device is to jump right to eye gaze mm -hmm. and yikes. Um, you can you can really cause a lot more problems with jumping right to eye gaze rather than breaking down exactly what's going to happen. And that takes a team. And OTs have so much to contribute to that problem solving. Um, I think it's interesting, and, and I, I put this note when I knew that you were going to ask me certain questions. Uh, I happen to be one of the members of the National Joint Committee for the Communication per, uh, uh, Needs of Persons with Severe Disability, also known as the NJC. It was established in the 1980s, and they had representat representatives from ASHA, AOTA, APTA, Council on Exceptional Children, the American Association on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, and the Association for Persons with Severe Handicaps. And yet we still have people sitting in their separate corners in many environments not coming together. And we know it takes a village to support the communication needs of individuals. What, uh, Judy, I think some people would be, uh, who listen to this podcast would be familiar with the Communication Bill of Rights. That's the NJC, right? At, absolutely. And that Communication Bill of Rights was written by representatives from all those different agencies. Um, and if uh, I hope that you'll put a, a, a little link to that um, with the... Um, with the uh, transcript for this, um, the, I, I will say that the NJC is in the process of, of revising these um, Bill of Rights to make them a little bit more um, user-friendly in terms of the wording, um, because a lot of the wording is, um, is more... Um, not going to say intellectual, but but it's uh, at a reading level that's maybe a, a 10th grade reading level. And um, in order for it to be accessible to everybody, we need to make sure that that um, a lot of the words that are being used are understandable by a greater um, population. But um, the, the Bill of Rights is really designed to put a face to a communicator, that it's not just these are people with certain needs and they need to have a means of communication, but what do they need to communicate? They have a right to communicate when they, they want more information. They have a right to communicate when they're afraid or they need to report something that has happened to them. They, they have a right to, um, to ask questions and not just be told things. Um, so those are all different aspects of, of the Communication Bill of Rights that bear um, uh, another look. I actually did a, a, a presentation at ATIA this, this year with, um, with another occupational therapist, Charlie Danger, who I think has um, been a, a guest on your podcast. And here it was 
two OTs that were talking about the Communication Bill of Rights, but it has so much to do with the personhood and who we are as, as human beings and, and what we all aspire to, that everybody has that right to have those same feelings and those same emotions and the same opportunity to express them. So if you haven't looked at that, please do, because it, it will bring home again that this is all of our jobs. We will absolutely make sure it is linked in the show notes. Um, Something else I want to dig into, Judy, that you said, and I just want to reiterate it, is that um, because I'm feeling, I'm having some feelings, uh, some frustrated feelings about the continued silos that you mentioned before. Like, well, I'm a speech therapist, so I'm the one should be making decisions about the AAC, or I should be the the leader of the AAC uh, conversation, um, as opposed to, and maybe an occupational therapist who might be like, yeah, that's your thing, not my thing. So yeah, go ahead. You ha- Clearly that's a defined role that you do that and I do this and th- never will the two meet. Uh, I don't know that's the right expression, but you know what I'm saying, right? Um, and it, it can even be an excuse to not collaborate because that's your thing and this is my thing. Um, but we see better outcomes when there is collaboration and we see um, greater investment from all parties when the they everyone had a say in um in what uh what the choice was right now i just i can feel it i can feel an an, an assistive technology person or an aac guru or even a speech language pathologist i've decided it's x and now the speech uh, now the occupational therapist comes in and says like oh what this kid's using proloquo now like what is this i didn't know this like oh okay i guess i'll do that and i as opposed to being foundational in the decision-making process and then the ongoing decision-making process about how things are working and how things might be adjusted. That is a frustration level. And, and I've, I've observed that in some of the districts that I've consulted with. And I think, again, it, it boils down to administration. It boils down to um, communication and it boils down to a a united request for ongoing in-service training. So people feel competent to make these decisions. Um, Something that I I remember you all were doing um, as I was leaving um, uh, Loudoun County was revising um, the way that we um, start the, uh, not the even the assessment process, but the pre-assessment process where we um, worked on simplifying some of the, um, some of the materials that have been out there for years and years and they're tried and true, but they're, they're cumbersome. Um, And uh, looking at the fact that um, and I can, I, maybe you'll disagree with me as an SLP, but as an OT, standardized testing doesn't give us the big picture. Um, as an OT for years and years and years, I gave the VMI, and the VMI is one of these pre-writing strokes that is supposed to be an indicator of whether someone's going to be a competent writer. Um, in terms of the the motor aspect of of producing letters. Well, I had kids that bombed on the VMI, but they could write letters perfectly fine. And I had kids that could produce all those shapes, but they couldn't put them together to, to form letters. And so when 
I believe that sometimes we need these standardized tests in order to justify for the insurance company or or to show growth, but we need to be better observers. We need to be better understanders um, without preconceived notions about if they can't do A, then they, they certainly can't do B. We need to, to look at possibilities. Um, you know, Lauren Enders says this over and over again, presume the potential um, and we look need to look at possibilities. And in order to do the best job of doing that, we need the, more than one perspective. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I, I think that, that uh, well, tell, tell me where you've gone, what, where Loudon has gone in this process since I left. Well, let me tell you, rather than Loudon specific, let me just say, yeah, we call it the resource consideration guide. And, you know, we have built it off of... Um, the work down in Wisconsin, the Wadi, right? And like you said, that is a very robust tool that you can use. And I would point everybody there, but then we've taken it. And like you said, we tried to simplify it and, and make it so that we could have these conversations. But really all it is, is, um, is asking a series of questions to make sure you're not leaving anything out and getting everyone's different perspectives on the, that answer, you know, yes. I, just a quick story, Judy, the, the, one of the, the, it wasn't the meeting that I was late and I had to cancel for last week, but it was on the same day. I was at a meeting with a speech therapist, occupational therapist, physical therapist, the teacher and the assistive technology person. And then me who was supporting, you know, all of those. And Uh, Based on just the AT person, um, I had this picture. I was like, okay, this kid is going to be, we're going to be, I already know what it's going to be. My arrogance getting in the way. It's going to be a a switch we're going to use, or maybe multiple switches. We're probably going to end up with core scanner and um, we're going to be trying that. And man, how fast can we do this, right? By the end of the hour conversation, completely wrong. That was not where we ended up. We learned from different perspectives. Oh no, this kid is direct selecting and he's using an occupational therapist. No, he's hitting, he's, he's finger isolating and he's pushing, pushing a screen. He's doing that all the time. Well, how small? Oh yeah. He could target something smaller. And the speech therapist is like, really? I've never seen him do that. And the teacher's like, no, I've seen it when they come in, but how come when I haven't seen it? And the conversation erupts. That's just one aspect of this uh, guide would be, um, you know, how, how is the student accessing what they're accessing? But again, the point being this collaborative decision-making, because when you get those, those different perspectives, wow, does it really shape, um, and make a better decision and everyone left going, okay, now we know what we want to try. You know, we're all on the same page, what we want to try. And then it also gives the opportunity for the questions, how come it doesn't work in that one aspect? How come so-and-so didn't see it. Is it because it's after lunch and they're full or or maybe they're not getting taken to the toilet in a timely manner and they're thinking more about needing to go to the bathroom than anything else? And so that uh, problem solving is, is so key to assuring success because we have so many things that are given up on and abandoned without really having the analysis of, of actually why didn't it work? Yes, was it and- because it was never charged or so many of those different things. And what can we do differently as the uh, adults and educators that are supporting to give them an opportunity to, to fail, giving them an opportunity to try it, you know? Uh, Yeah. He never uses that thing or we hear that all the time, but what, what can we do differently? So the biggest, 
Go biggest ahead. enemy of this though, Chris, is time. And I don't know how we can buy that because I know I remember so many IEPs that were hours at a time. And then there was the the idea of streamlining them and no, no IEP longer than a certain amount of time. If we don't have time somewhere to have these discussions and they can be asynchronous, they can be through a, a Google doc where everybody fills it in. But if we don't um, acknowledge the value of that, um, we're, 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 uh, we're failing before we've even, you know, gotten through the whole process. There has to be a time or a means of getting that input from everybody, because if somebody's out of the loop, then that's one missing piece that that child is going to miss out on because that person doesn't know they can or can't do it because of A, B, or C. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that's something logistically we can figure out or we can attempt to, right? I mean, right. Um, and I wonder if the more frequently we do it, because I wonder how often that's actually happening, but the more frequently we do it, the better we get at it, you know? And so that time might at first, like this meeting that I was in, it took us, you know, over an hour to try and get us to something, but maybe the next time it's 45 minutes because the same players sort of know what that paperwork is. When I say paperwork, that what the Wadi is, or, you know, our version of the Wadi, the Wadi we go through, we'll go through it, through you know? it you know? And those same players will learn to trust each other. Because I know once what once I know what you know, Chris, I'm I know who to go to if I have a question. And yeah. they may tell somebody who may tell somebody who may tell somebody. And and it, it can be such a positive ripple effect. Yeah. Next time I'm gonna be like, oh you're right, the fluorescent lights, maybe that's infecting, you know, that that's impacting things, you know. Um, you know, back to your story about how the how the, yeah. rest of the, 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 the screen was obliterated by the lights or Pretty sitting position. Oh, those are, those are killers when their feet aren't flat on the floor and, and they're sliding all over the chair. And that's why maybe that they're, they're not focused. Yeah. yeah. So many different variables. Um, let me ask you this too, um, from the occupational therapy lens, um, a certain frustration again, that I think maybe assistive technology people have had, when I say people, it's all of us, but a, a frustration around assistive technology is that notion. And this is certainly something you taught me over the years. Um, uh, you were the first one to really put it in my brain was that assistive technology, the first word in that definition is any, any item, right? So this it's not just things that are batteries or that have um, that are you plug into the wall, right? And so assistive technology is sometimes pigeonholed into this thing when really it's uh, it's it's almost anything. Well, in that same breath, do you often feel like occupational therapists get pigeonholed into, all right, this is the fine motor person and that's what they do. They do fine motor and maybe a little sensory if they've advocated for it and everything else sort of falls to the side is that a fair and what else what else should other people be considering besides just those two things that's that's a fair thing and that's a, a prime example of siloing and so we have to be our own best advocates we have to um we have to share with administrators that we are more than the talking people or more than the writing people or more than the um climb the stairs in the in the PE room uh people that that we have more to offer um and and that's that's uh that's essential in order in order for us to get the point across and and for us to to um to advocate for our own profession that that we're more than just one thing and I think that's very repetitive. So you can cut a, a bunch of that out when <laughs> when you edit. <laughs> no, well, Judy, here's the thing. I think um, I think people need to hear that. So, and I think maybe some people 
uh, in our own disciplines need to hear it, you know, like, because I think some people do get feel real comfortable. Look, at I'm the AAC person and I only do AAC or I only do language or I only do uh, articulation or I, yep, I only do fine motor and I only do sensory. I don't do these other things. So from both angles, I feel like it needs to be yelled from the rooftop. And again, I think, and it's hard because if nobody wants to educate the administrators, the administrators tend to think that way too, um, especially administrators who are not necessarily special educators. So um, if we don't want to be pigeonholed, we have to educate everyone about what we have to offer. Uh, so uh, speaking of educating people, you I mentioned it earlier that you do, you get some gigs sometimes to do presentations. Where have you been presenting and what have you been presenting on? Well, um, I actually have presented um, at a, a couple of national conferences. I, I do ATIA and I do Closing the Gap, um, but I've also been um, consulting with several school districts and um, several state conferences. Um, some of the things that I've been doing, well, you, you're going to go to Oregon next month. You're doing, um, at ties together and I've done at ties together, um, both in person and virtually for a number of years. And one of the offerings they had virtually last year was, um, Dave Eddyburn. Um, and Dave Eddyburn was talking about, um, a lot of the technology that we can use, um, nowadays to, to change, um, the way print looks and the way print is understood. And it got me to thinking about one of his earlier, um, terms, cognitive rescaling. And so one of the presentations that I developed was based just on that, um, um, presentation that he did. I went back and I looked at the resources he talked about and I organized them and I revisited the concept of cognitive rescaling and I applied it to number one, adapting books, because that's been always a passion of mine, but kind of, uh, raised the bar for myself, um, in terms of that's not just for picture books and for, um, early childhood, that's all the way up to chapter books and, and everything else. And what are the different things that we can do for making sure, because cognitive rescaling isn't just for kids with cognitive challenges. It's for English language learners. It's for um, kids who can't pay attention long enough to, to get that tucked into their long-term memory. So I've been doing um, some presentations on cognitive rescaling. Um, one of my passions um, that, that uh, I, I've done for a number of years with another OT from Loudoun County is our adapted repurposed toolkits, which goes back to making junk um, um, usable. Uh, and, and we called those our art kits and we made a bunch of different art tools. And these aren't all things that we quote invented. These were things that we found from the internet and we just collected together and organized it because as an assistive technology trainer at the time that we developed this, this, uh, these art tool kits, I was consulting with art teachers and, um, uh, paraprofessionals that went into the art room with, with students who were doing all their project. Well, the, the paraprofessionals were often doing the, the student's project for for them because they felt that the kid had to leave art class with a product. The art teachers were struggling with how to um, still support the standards and adjust them accordingly for the student. And then um, the OT, uh, Debbie Schwind, who was um, looking at the art toolkits from the standpoint of a child actually performing the art assignment um, in the classroom, we kind of put together this, these kits and then an educational program to go with them to train people on how to use these tools. 
And the tools were simple things like milk jug handles that could be turned into a holder for a tool or um, PVC um, uh, apparatus or um, easels out of pizza boxes so that the, um, the art project itself was easeled up for someone who had difficulty um, with proximal st stability. And if they looked down, they would kind of lose their balance and everything else. So getting their project up in a, in a plane that was viewable to them and so that they could reach. So some of it was common sense. Some of it was, um, was uh, particular adaptations, but everything was made with pool noodles and PVC pipe and milk jug handles and things that were around that anybody could turn into a project. And then we used our maker club, which was a Loudoun County product, um, to produce 88 of these kits. So every art teacher got one. And then we took it from there to doing um, whole group trainings so that um, everybody could learn why these tools worked, how to position the kid and then um, how to make the tools themselves. So we did go from that expert model, maybe to coaching people to saying, hey, the tool's yours, go run with it. And if you can figure out other things to do, go for it. You have the power to create. So another thing that I, I've been doing for a number of years is I love play and I love making um, accessible toys. And um, there's some great websites. Um, Hasbro Toys, if you're not familiar with this, Hasbro Toys has a, um, a, a collaboration with the Autism Project. And they've um, broken down play into um, manageable steps for, for students who may have difficulty understanding what play really is. And they might just scatter play items because they don't know how to do it. And so they've broken it down and they look at the stages of play, like the parable, parallel play and the, the, um, the uh, collaborative play, but they've also given visuals like um, wait time and my turn and a countdown timer. So when play is over and scripts to go along with these, these play activities so that kids can be productive players. It's not to force them how to play, but maybe to bring play to fruition. So for example, Mr. Potato Head, maybe it's just all these little parts and they get scattered all over, but maybe sequencing Mr. Potato Head. So first you put in the eyes and then you put in the arms. Not, it doesn't matter. The order doesn't matter as much as it is organizing it so it makes sense so that there there's a product as opposed to just these things that make noise when you push them around on on the table so that's been another thing that I've been working with. And um, the fun thing is that very rarely do I do these presentations by myself. Um, I've been presenting with um, speech and language pathologists. I've been presenting with your your buddy, Beth Poss from Inclusive um, from the inclusive book, I've been presenting with with other people that you've had on on the podcast, um, and I learn from doing that. I learn from their perspectives to make the presentations that I do much more robust. Um, I love adapting books, and I just want to highlight this. If somebody's interested in adapting books, Becky Jones, who I've I've learned by researching when I when I plan a presentation, just like you do, I research. The topics I present very often with Sally Norton Dar, who's a speech and language pathologist, and we've been doing these adapting books workshops for years. But Becky Jones from Tech Access Rhode Island, and if you haven't interviewed her, she'd be a great interviewee, um, has created these adapted book kits, and she has um, now produced. Um, she uses a Thingling. And she said, well, yeah, you're outside of Rhode Island. You can't check out these kits yourself. Here's how I made them. 
here's how I, here's where I found this material. Here's where I found this material. Here's where I found this material. Here's where I found this, this material. You can do it yourself. She uses products like lesson picks. Um, she, she always incorporates high contrast images. She's gotten information from teacher pay teacher, but some of the freebies there, um, she incorporates um, videos. She incorporates Tar Heel Reader. So she ends up with a really robust adapted book um, um, kit that can be used by a wide variety of, of learners. Um, and there's something for everyone. So she's considered, a, Dave Eddyburn called it his blueprint of diversity. She's, uh, he's uh, considered um, people with visual differences. He's, uh, she's considered people with hearing differences, language differences, processing differences, memory differences, attentional differences. And so there's there's something for everyone. And, you know, somebody that, that looks at this kit isn't going to go, oh, this is the one for someone who's not paying attention. I'm only going to do this thing. She's just in incorporated these thoughts and these plans into a really nice, um, nice um, kit that can be put together. I just finished um, a webinar on practical, versatile, and cheap assistive technology supports. That's PVC for all of you that haven't recognized that uh, that those initials. Um, it was put the book was put out in 2005. You can find it on the internet. Um, look for practical, versatile, and cheap assistive technology supports um, the assistive technology educational network out of florida i think it's fiddlers now um, put it out in 2005 but i i um, took that uh, handbook and i made every single tool in it all the little pvc things there's there's um uh uh tablet holders there's the uh the adjustable eye gaze frame that Linda Burkhart pioneered that tilts back and forth so that somebody sidelining or on their back can still see what's being displayed. Um, there's a, um, a, a, a what is an abacus that you can make with with different uh, uh, widths of PVC. So there you get a, a large counting tool. There's um, uh, tablet. Uh, I said tab tablet holders. There's um, um, voice output device holders. There's all sorts of things in this book that you can put together. Um, and then I've also gone online and found extra things like I can. I have a do-it-yourself sensory table that you can make out of PVC pipe and drop a, a stearite a rubber-made tub inside it. But the cool thing is you can lift that tub out and you can take the PVC pipe apart, store it in the tub along with other things. And you've got a kit that can move from school to school with you. So you can trial it and decide whether the kid needs a low um, sensory thing that they can sit on the floor and use or they need a high one so their wheelchair can get under it, but you can customize this so everyone can participate. And that's been one of my favorite things. And then uh, um, years ago, our, our AT team did uh, um, some uh, tools for executive function. And I've kind of stuck with that one, but um, kind of stuck with the low tech stuff, the things that you can print and things that you can fold and the things that you can do with mnemonics because everybody knows the apps and everybody can find all those apps. But sometimes um, the learner needs to have something in their hand that they can fiddle with and have little pipe cleaners and beads and, and dials and things that they can use to indicate their, their stress level or um, their methodology for how mad they are or how happy they are or what they're going to do about it. So, so those are the things I've been working on. That's it. That's it. That's, 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 that's all you got. <laughs> That's all I got for now. Oh, you know, the, the, the one thing that I am working on, I think, um, I think is, um, oh, 
the questing, the thing I'm questing about and curious about right now. Um, I am reading um, Karen Erickson and David Copenhaver's um, book, uh, Comprehensive Literacy, again, and I'm using uh, Alyssa Warren's book study um, to just really delve into that because uh, when I look at it again and again and again, I learn new things about literacy. And we've certainly learned, I mean, for years and years and years with my adapted book kits, I was doing everything with rebuses and, and um, um, you know, every every uh, word had an icon to go with it. And now we know that our kids can do, um, they can learn the letter sounds. Uh, my granddaughter is five and, and she is uh, learning to read. And the other night I listened to her read and she was, <laughs> you know, all the different word sounds and, and putting them together. And if we don't ki give kids these tools and if we don't give them the key, we're withholding a treasure for from them. Um, so I'm reading that book and then then I am aging in place, believe it or not. And so is my mom at 102. And so I am now looking into do-it-yourself assistive technology for eight, the people that are aging in place. I'm looking at the things that my mom's already doing. I'm looking at like my art toolkits and things and seeing how that applies to that. Um, button hooks and stocking puller uppers and, and reachers and things like that so that that uh, I can I can support my mom and um, I'm speaking to several groups in the community about those things with that particular age group in mind. And for those of you that are listening to this podcast who are hitting their 50s and their 60s, we have to turn our trust over to to the newer people that are, are um, coming up in the assistive technology community. But we also have to be a voice for what we need as we move forward in our aging process, just like we want our, our kids to have a voice in, in advocating for themselves. So that's what I'm doing. Judy, if people Judy, wanted to get in touch with you, what would be the best way for them to do that? They can email me or they can text me. Um, I don't, I, I'm, I'm on Twitter. They can, they can, I do the Twitter. <laughs> I do the Twitter, Chris, cause you taught me how, um, but the best way probably would be an email. Um, and, uh, you can, um, you can produce my email. Sounds you good. Can Judy. You can invite me back. I would, I would enjoy that very much. Um, this, this was not as, as, uh, scary as I thought it would be. I, I told Chris the first time he filmed me that I am paralyzed by indecision. I'm always afraid of taking a misstep. Um, I'm very confident in my in my personal making world that I I know the materials, but I'm less confident confident about whether that's meaningful to anybody but me. <laughs> so um, Chris made this very painless. So if he comes knocking at your door, don't be afraid. You can do this. <laughs> Thank you, Judy. Thank you.